Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, welcome back to Murder Asserts. I'm Denise Gilhart, a genealogist, and with me is the Everfestant Zelda. Hello. Hello, Zelda. How are you doing, lady? Okay, I am still on a high from having been in London. I'm so jealous. Can I be your niece? Sure, I'm I'm open for these sorts of things. I'll talk to one of my brothers about adopting you, and I'm sure it won't be a problem at all. I go with the one who has so. money. And he can afford okay, that would be any of them, none of them. Oh. It depends on how you, you know, really define these <laughs> things. So, but we're all rich in love. Yes. Lots of love. But yeah, so I took Caitlin over mm-hmm. and they were so just mesmerized by London. And Kate kept saying, I want to move here. I'm like, do it, do it. I mean, you're in your early 20s, go. You know, now's the time to go have adventures. Don't wait till you're 50 and everything just irritates you. (laughs) You (laughs) It's one of those things where I wish I had the wherewithal and the ability and made travel more of a priority when I was younger. You know, I was always so poor. (laughs) But darn it, I wish I, I would have known more and I could have found a job that would have made it possible. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Well, and it's honestly just traveling now is so much more accessible than it was when we were in our 20s. That's true. You know, I mean, relatively speaking, plane tickets are cheaper. Um, You know, it's less of an endurance contest, you know, Mm -hmm. because planes are also faster. Um, There's like a lot of things to really recommend it. Whereas, And, you know, I hadn't been on a plane till I was in my 20s. And my very first trip was to Altus, Oklahoma. So, ooh, that's that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. And um my second plane trip was to Ireland. So, when I was studying in England for um for law school. Right. So, um yeah. but and I was so thrilled and I was so green cuz you know, like I hadn't traveled much in the US, right. much less overseas. So, everything was delightful. You know, like I mean, Everything was delightful. Oh my God, we're on a plane. I'm looking out a window. Oh my God, there's mountains. Oh my God, we're over the ocean. Oh my God. And I'm sure that my my friend who was with me was just like, seriously, just just stop. But um, everything was just fresh and amazing. And everyone was so kind. And I mean, honestly, Ireland stole my heart the moment I stepped foot. And then England was amazing as well. So yeah. I was on a plane the first time before I was even six months old. I'm a military brat, Air Force (laughs) brat to be specific. And I mean, we lived in Germany twice. So, and I've been to England, but I was too little to remember. So going back to Europe is definitely on my wish list. And seeing England and Ireland and Scotland for the first time as an adult is definitely on my list. I mean, I still have memories of Germany and Luxembourg and a little bit of um, Eastern France, but not... (laughs) Not that. No. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I have my wish list is, is pretty huge. And that's part of why I got my job now. Because um, I mm-hmm. started a part-time job since we last talked. 
And I'm basically... How do you love it? I really like it there. I mean, it's nothing really exciting. I'm I'm basically the, the school's, one of the school's secretaries, which mm-hmm. I'm administrative assistant, whatever. But um, it's part-time. I just work in the morning, and then I'm gone, so it gives me time to get stuff done for the kids and the house and actually for this podcast and other things. But uh-huh. it's more adjusting to the schedule, but everybody there is so nice. It's my two youngest kids there school i'm already know a lot of the staff and stuff already because my kids have been going to school there for the past several years um and they all know know my girls that's for sure what's nice though is when the teachers go oh those are your kids they're so good oh i love that instead of those demon children are yours actually one teacher goes you need to really write a parenting book and i'm like no you mean how to fail (laughs) she goes your kids are so, basically it was it's this um the teacher my youngest she she has had all the girls this is the last one mm-hmm. and she's like your kids have always been so fantastic so whatever you're doing is perfect and you need to write a book and i'm like oh well gosh, you are the sweetest because so cool. i feel like a failure half the time she goes that's just being a mother mm-hmm. <laughs> that is like every mother i know feels like they're failing and i'm just like seriously Like, honestly, I bet if somebody, if CPS showed up at your doorstep right this minute, pounding on the door and saying, let us in, and they searched your house high and low, every nook and cranny, every closet, everything, they would not find a single speck of heroin. No. You are rocking it. (laughs) That one, that one we're clear on. (laughs) Yep. And a friend of mine was like, is that our standard? We don't have heroin in the house. And I'm like apparently according to how children are being raised now so it's like Uh, i think honestly moms put too much pressure on themselves today i mean our parents were just like trying to try to stay alive all day while we're gone i know know? it's just so funny because i i was relating that to my oldest today in the car we we had to run some errands after when she got home from school and i'm like yeah you know i said something about being genetics and she goes really whatever you know Am I raising her like a Gen X? I don't know. She's got the sarcasm down. Um, <laughs> but I did say, you know, we were the what were called latchkey kids. At least the younger part of us got that name more so than mm-hmm. like my age and yours. We we were left for the summer just to do what we wanted to do while our kids were off. Our kids while our parents were off at work, and we did. I mean, somebody asked recently posted something the other day about Gen X and having ridden our bikes across the town. I don't know how many miles I rode one summer, but it was a lot. And I hit, oh, yeah. I hit the two lane highways that were 55 mile per hour zones. Mm-hmm. If my mother knew at the time, I would have been dead. But she was at work. So, you know, she didn't know. <laughs> and what didn't know didn't hurt her. So we're all good. Mm-hmm. That's funny. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, before we continue, um, and before I get to corrections, I wanted to mention to everyone that we now have a Facebook group that everyone is welcome Dun-dun-dun. to join. Um, the name of All the, the cool kids are doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The name of the group is Murderous Roots Podcast. So you can just look us up. And I'm also going to have a link on the website. So if you want to join us, you can. Uh, we put up polls to see if who you want us to talk about next to just telling you what's going on behind the scenes. And if you have stories you want to share, that's a place to do it as well. So I just 
had an urge one day. I'm like, let's just do this. And I'm glad I did. Let's see what happens. And then we can gossip about other podcasters without them knowing. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. See. (laughs) And as for corrections, I did make a few small mistakes mixing up names and dates. Like I said, something that happened in 1853 happened in 1953. So I was 100 years off. Um, eh, what's a hundred yeah. years? Seriously. But so for that, I apologize. That happens. But I do want to mention, though, to you, Zelda, I watched the documentary that Al Michaels mentioned on the last yeah. episode. The Life and Death was it? of Marsha P. Johnson. Um, I had started in the past, but never finished it. And I did. And it's so good. And it's available to stream on Netflix. So anybody Fantastic. can watch it. And you even get to see Al and his mom, Jean, in the documentary at the end. That is really cool. Yeah. And I have some news. We have news? I love news. Tell me news. We have a new patron. (gasps) No way! (laughs) Now we have as many patrons as we have podcasters. Um, Actually, no. The last one dropped out. Oh, man. She paid for one month. She got access to the um, extra episode and she left and I can respect that. Yeah. So it's freedom of will. Yep. Thank you for becoming a patron, Leah Pinturi. She's from Indiana and we are thrilled to have you. Go Hoosiers. Yay. And she's a patron at the $8 level. And by the way, we have three levels. We have for as little as $3, $8 and $15. And each comes with more benefits the more you pay. And after three months with us, she will get a Murderous Roots t-shirt. Wow. That's pretty sweet. And she already has a thank you note and sticker on the way, I believe. Well, you know, no, I I have not yet written the note. Ah. I have, however, picked out the thank you card. There we go. So, And I have the sticker. So we have made progress. Actually, by the time this airs, it will probably actually be mailed out. Yes. And she should have received it. So, yes, of course it's done. She has that on the way soon, and she will also have access. So at the $8 level, she'll also have access to one exclusive, at least one exclusive episode that we have now and any others we have in the future. Documents and photos only subscribers can see as well. And I've already posted a couple of those. So very cool. I hope she enjoys her time as a patron because now she's officially our favorite patron. Yay! Yay! Okay. So, today is the last of our summer sodes. Because like I said, mm-hmm. we're going to be moving Harvey Milk to a regular episode because there's so much there to discuss. So, this mm-hmm. is the last of it. And we're discussing something a lot of people haven't heard about. I know, I didn't learn this in history class. And it's the story of Fraser B. Baker, a postmaster from South Carolina who was lynched because he had the audacity to accept his position as a black man. Mm-hmm. So what do you have yeah, for us, Zelda? This, this is pretty horrifying, mm-hmm. you know, and honestly, it was even considered horrifying at the time it happened. Yes. When, you know, back back in that part of U.S. history, lynchings were seen almost as an expected outcome of enforcing civil rights of black people. Right. So kind of how we see school shootings today, frankly. Oh, well, if we want to have the Second Amendment, we're going to have to put up with this. Right. So I have a feeling that, um, yeah, I've got feelings about this, as I'm sure many, many people do who are more directly affected than me. Right. Anyway, 
point of all of this is that since we cannot trust the history being taught in schools, I'm going to give a little bit of background on Reconstruction. Okay. Because although this happened post-Reconstruction, the events of Reconstruction and immediately following definitely come to bear in this particular Oh, yeah. It impacted a lot of what happened to black people in general. Yes, especially in the South. Oh, yeah. And Jim Crow laws. So, everyone should know the American Civil War was from 1861 to 1865. Reconstruction era was a period in American history that followed the Civil War, and it lasted from 1865 to about 1877. And it marked a significant chapter in the history of civil rights in the U.S. So, Reconstruction, as directed by Congress abolished slavery, and ended the remnants of Confederate secession in the southern states. It proclaimed the newly freed enslaved people citizens of the United States with the same civil rights as those of white people. These rights were nominally guaranteed by three new constitutional amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, collectively known as the Reconstruction Amendments. So not super creative, but definitely we know where that's coming from. It also refers to the general attempt by Congress to transform the 11 former Confederate states and refers to the role of the Union states in that transformation. So following the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, who led the Republican Party in opposing slavery and fighting the war, Vice President Andrew Johnson assumed the presidency. (laughs) Now, he'd been a prominent Unionist in the South, but, you know, uh, he was an old white guy, Southerner. Yeah. At heart, and he soon favored the ex-Confederates and became a leaning, op- a leading opponent of freedmen and their radical Republicans allies. They called them the radical Republicans because they wanted to give black people the same rights as white people. That was <laughs> radical. So nuts. Okay. So his intention, uh, Andrew Johnson's intention, was to give the returning Southern states relatively free reign in deciding the rights and fates of former enslaved people. So... While Lincoln's last speeches show this grand vision for Reconstruction, including full suffrage for freedmen, Johnson and the Democrats adamantly opposed any such goals. And their Reconstruction policies generally prevailed until the congressional elections of 1866, following a year of violent attacks against Black people in the South. These attacks included the Memphis riots in May and the New Orleans massacre in July. The 1866 elections gave Republicans a majority in Congress, and they used that power to press forward and adopt the 14th Amendment. Congress federalized the protection of civil rights and dissolved the legislatures of rebel states, requiring new state constitutions to be adopted throughout the South that guaranteed the civil rights of freedmen. Radical, again, this radical Republicans in the in the House of Representatives, frustrated by Johnson's opposition to congressional reconstruction, filed impeachment charges, and the action failed by just one vote in the Senate. So the new national reconstruction laws incensed many, many white people in the South, giving rise to the Ku Klux Klan, which, as we all know, intimidated, terrorized, and murdered freedmen and Republicans, including Arkansas Congressman James Hines, In nearly all ex-Confederate states, Republican coalitions came to power and directly set out to transform Southern society. The Freedmen's Bureau and the U.S. Army both aimed to implement a free labor economy to replace the slave labor economy that had existed until the end of the Civil War. 
The Bureau protected the legal rights of freedmen, negotiated labor contracts, and helped establish networks of schools and churches. So thousands of Northerners came to the South as missionaries and teachers, as well as businessmen and politicians, to serve in the social and economic programs of Reconstruction. Carpetbagger became a derisive term used to attack supporters of Reconstruction who traveled from the North to the South. Now, they called the Republicans who supported measures for Black civil rights the scalawag element of Republicans. Yes, and generally speaking, whites typically opposed these measures. Some even supported armed attacks to suppress Black people. They self-consciously defended their own actions within the framework of a white American discourse of resistance against a tyrannical government. And they broadly succeeded in convincing many fellow white citizens. Where have we seen this before? Where? Where? Like in the last five years. Here, now, now, this is all happening again. History is cyclical. The opponents of Reconstruction formed state political parties affiliated with the National Democratic Party and often named the Conservative Party. They supported or tolerated violent paramilitary groups, such as the White League in Louisiana and the Red Shirts in Mississippi and the Carolinas, that assassinated and intimidated both Black and white Republican leaders at election time. Historian George Rabel called such groups the military arm of the Democratic Party. By the mid-1870s, the conservatives and Democrats had aligned with the National Democratic Party, which enthusiastically supported their cause, even as the National Republican Party was losing interest in Southern affairs. Yeah. So after the end of Reconstruction, racial segregation laws were enacted. These laws became popularly known as Jim Crow laws and thus ushered in the Jim Crow era. They remained in force from the end of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1965. The laws mandated racial segregation as policy in all public facilities in the southern states. The facilities were supposed to be separate but equal, but in effect were inferior, creating a situation of economic and social disadvantage. And of course, in 1913, President Woodrow Wilson extended segregation to the military and to federal workplaces. Because of course he did, right? And presidents that came before him were doing their very best, you know, to promote civil rights. And then, then we get a handful that come along and destroy everything, which is the way, isn't it? Like, that's the way. So all of this sets the stage for March 15, 1892 when Fraser B. Baker was appointed the postmaster of Effingham, South Carolina, an office he held for about a year and a half. Up till then, Baker was a black former farmer and treasurer of the Colored Farmers Alliance in Florence County, South Carolina. Now, at the time, and still a bit today, the position of postmaster was considered a plum government job that paid really well. So white people were pretty aggravated that the federal government was determined to have a certain number of these positions filled by black people. We don't know much about his experience in Effingham, but given the amount of crap given to black postmasters in general at the time, and the fact he was replaced by a white postmaster, gives some evidence that it was not all rainbows and butterflies while he was in Effingham. So when he left that office, he became a school teacher for a few years. After the 1896 presidential election, the Republican William McKinley administration appointed hundreds of black people to postmasterships across the southern United States during his remaining tenure as part of patronage jobs to build local networks. Then on July 30th, 1887, 
Fraser Baker was appointed as postmaster to the predominantly white town of Lake City, South Carolina. So, interestingly enough, okay, the post office serving the area was originally called Lynch's Lake. On December 24th, 1883, the town changed its name at the request of the post office since there was another post office in South Carolina known as Lynch's Lake. So the name was changed to Lake City, which derived from the popular fishing and swimming lakes just north of town. Fraser Baker immediately encountered fierce opposition from local white conservative Democrats. While the surrounding Williamsburg County was 63% black, Lake City was overwhelmingly white, with fewer than a dozen black residents. Whites initiated a boycott of the Lake City Post Office and circulated petitions calling for Baker's dismissal. So some of these complaints are absolutely insane. But one complaint was that Baker, a member of the Colored Farmers Alliance, as we had said, had cut mail delivery from three times a day to one after threats against his life were made. I'm like, well, that seems normal. That seems logical. A postal inspector arrived to investigate the complaints and recommended that the post office be closed. In response, a white mob burned it down with the expectation that no one would rent space for use as a post office while Baker remained postmaster. Well, the U.S. government obtained space on the outskirts of town and a lessening of racial tension about this time led Baker to send for his family in February 1898. His wife, Lavinia, arrived with their six children. Rosa, Cora, Lincoln, Sarah, Willie, and Julia. So threats against Baker's life were made as whites remained hostile to his presence. Baker communicated these threats to his superiors in Washington. Chichita Chestnut wrote a great article in 2008 for the National Archives magazine prologue, and I'm relying heavily on this for this next part. So Lake City residents, like those in many other Southern white communities at the time, resented African-Americans who sought equality through political arenas, organizations, and jobs. As a result, Baker encountered opposition immediately from the quote-unquote good people of Lake City. One night when he left the post office with some friends, Baker was shot at from an ambush. On another day, someone fired shots into the post office. When Baker assumed his position as postmaster, he made some major changes that angered the white residents. First, he moved the post office from the location it had for six years to a log house about a mile away from town. Again, after they had set fire to it, right? Then he changed the three mail deliveries to one a day. Then when the, he, they burned down the post office, that first fire burned down the post office, Baker decided I'm not going to receive or deliver mail for about a week. Now, all of this seems pretty normal. You know, you burn down the post office. It's really hard to have a post office. The residents accused Baker of administrative ignorance and incompetence, and they protested in a letter to the Lake City Times that was reprinted in the Charleston News and Curry on February 12, 1898. We have little courtesy shown us and the service is as poor as can be. The black person, that's not the word used, is uncivil, ignorant, and lazy. A petition for Baker's immediate removal, signed by 200 of Lake City's quote-unquote best people, was sent to the Assistant Postmaster General in Washington, D.C. Two separate investigations by federal post office inspectors produced no evidence to substantiate the residents' claims. Regrettably, though, some white residents took the matter into their own hands. Around 1 a.m. on February 22, 1898, the Baker family awoke to discover that a fire had been set to the back of their home where the local post office was located. Baker tried to put out the fire, but shots were fired through the walls of the cabin. 
Baker's final words were, come on, we might as well die running as standing. He opened the door and was shot multiple times. Lavinia was holding baby Julia and the mob shot her arm such that her arm shattered and the bullet went through baby Julia too. Lavinia's arm being useless, the baby fell to the floor dead. Daughters Rosa and Cora were each shot through the arm and his son Lincoln was shot in the arm and in the stomach. As the family tried to flee from their burning home, a white mob fired upon them. Lavinia described the horrible scene in the Charleston News and Courier interview the following day. Last night, we retired between 10 and 11 o'clock. About 1 o'clock, I awoke and found the building was on fire and the fire was making rapid progress. I then aroused my husband. He jumped up and by the time several shots were fired into the building, I took my baby into my arms and called the other children and followed Baker, who was making for the door. He reached the door, stuck his head out, and was instantly shot several times in the body and through the head. He groaned, reeled, and fell back in the building near the door. Almost at the same time, I myself was shot in the left arm on which my baby was resting and not being able to support the child any longer, I dropped it. I noticed, however, that it had already been killed. After remaining there a few minutes, the other children and myself fled to the house of my neighbor for protection. We got there alive, but three of my remaining five children and myself are wounded. So, Lavinia, wounded by the same bullet that had killed her daughter, rallied her family to escape the burning house, and they ran across the road to hide under shrubbery in an adjacent field. After waiting for the flames and gunfire to subside, Lavinia made her way to a neighbor's home, where she found one daughter waiting. They were later joined by the oldest, Rosa. Rosa had been shot through the right arm and fled the house as an unidentified armed white male pursued her. Only Sarah and Willie escaped unscathed. The survivors remained in Lake City for three days, but received no medical treatment. Their home was riddled with literally hundreds of bullets. When news of the atrocity spread, outraged citizens wrote to the president, members of Congress, and the Department of Justice, demanding federal help to fight racial violence. Ida B. Wells, a famous anti-lynching activist, fought on behalf of the Baker family to receive some sort of compensation and practical support. National attention was brought to the case when the state of South Carolina failed to prosecute any of the guilty persons and the U.S. District, the Federal District of South Carolina stepped in with the aid of the Office of the Post Office Inspector. Who say that 10 times fast? Unlike previous lynching murder cases, the Baker case attracted federal attention because it involved a federal employee. In fact, a couple of the news articles even mentioned, this isn't your run-of-the-mill lynching. This was a federal employee. And it's kind of like you're that blasé about lynching, right? It's it's so crazy. So from the beginning of the 14 months of extensive investigation, the U.S. attorney for the Charleston District, Abia Lathrop, realized the challenge the Department of Justice and post office inspectors would be facing in prosecuting the guilty parties, despite public sentiment to have them punished. The general consensus in Lake City was that none of their residents had anything to do with the lynching, and business went on as if nothing had happened. The only thing that concerned them was, how are they going to get their mail? Yeah. Incidentally, I went and looked up the looked up Lake City and their post office and their history, and they mentioned nothing. And one of the things they brag on is that they've had uninter- uninterrupted mail since, like, 1893 or something like that. It was like, really? I'm like, come on, Lake City, pull it together. 
It had become evident early on in the case that witnesses were unwilling to give testimony unless they were given protection. These eyewitnesses were living in the area at the time of the lynching and had either witnessed the burning of the home, heard gunshots, or attended meetings where discussions were made to murder the postmaster. As a result, they were too frightened to identify any of the guilty persons involved. So, the Charleston Post Office inspectors Bulla and Moy wrote to Lathrop that no witnesses would testify against any lynchers unless they received help to get out of the community and were provided with financial assistance. Without these witnesses, the prosecution could not justify issuing any arrest warrants. Lathrop could offer these witnesses immunity and sought the Attorney General's approval to provide them with financial provisions. He also asked that Baker's widow, Lavinia, their surviving children and their friends be treated in the same manner as the witnesses and relocated from the area and given financial assistance. This was the first and only time financial restitution for the surviving Baker family was mentioned in the Attorney General's correspondence. By early July 1898, Lythrop had arrested 10 white men and charged them with conspiracy to injure or intimidate citizens in the free exercise of their civil rights. Three more would later be arrested and charged with the lynching of the postmaster. Two of the conspirators confessed and expressed their willingness to testify for the prosecution against the others. The government's prosecution of U.S. v. Martin v. Ward et al. began on Monday, April 10, 1899. Once the jurors were selected, Lathrop considered the all-white male jury to be comprised, in quotes, comprised of representative businessmen from nearly every section of the state, and it was generally conceded to be one of the best juries ever impaneled for the trial of any case in this state. This will make what happens later even more disappointing. Many witnesses were called on behalf of the government, including four members of the Baker family, Lavinia, Rosa, Cora, and Lincoln, who testified about the murder of their father and sister, as well as the injuries they suffered. As a result of turning state's evidence against the other 11 defendants, Newham and Early Lee escaped prostitution, escaped prosecution by the government. The district attorney set out to prove a well-constructed open and shut murder case. The 11 defendants were indicted for the original civil rights charges and additionally for conspiracy to intimidate to prevent an individual from accepting or holding office in the U.S. and willfully destroying mail. The defense questioned the credibility, reputation, and testimony of the government's witnesses, especially Newham and Lee, and while presenting seemingly solid alibis for their defendants. The prosecution could not use Lee's testimony when it was discovered he had served 30 days in a chain gang for stealing a crosscut saw. Witnesses for the defense testified that Newham had been a witness in the court in King Street, South Carolina, on the day he claimed to be in Lake City conspiring to murder Baker, even though the record seemed to have been tampered with and possibly changed. Because that's how it rolls, right? On cross-examination, the defense made the witnesses admit they had received money from the government. Witnesses for the defense also testified that the government's witnesses knew nothing of the lynching, but were testifying only for monetary reason. When the prosecution and defense finished their closing arguments and submitted all their evidence on April 19th, Bell was still confident. In a telegram to the attorney general, he wrote, If the jury does not convict, it will be utterly useless hereafter to attempt convictions in this state for similar offenses. Which it, it was. So after two strong opposing arguments, the jury deliberated for 24 hours. On April 22nd, not guilty verdicts were returned for three men. The jury was deadlocked five to seven for a guilty verdict on the other eight defendants, and the judge ordered a mistrial. The federal government apparently still hoped to retry the lynchers as of April 2nd, 1901, 
when it transferred the case to the contingent docket, and they kept the case file open until 1908, but it was never retried. So after the trial, Lavinia Mm. Baker was quite aware of her family's dire conditions in South Carolina. When a young white woman named Lillian Clayton Jewett from Boston, Massachusetts, came to Charleston to meet with her and promised a better life in the North and economic support, Mrs. Baker agreed. This was a bit controversial, as Jewett was seen as a sensationalist, and some thought she really just wanted to exploit the Baker family. Baker and Jewett had a falling out Mm -hmm. after several public appearances, and then another friend, William Lloyd Garrison Jr., led fundraising efforts in order to buy a home for the Baker family near Boston, which did happen, and the Bakers lived quietly in Chelsea for several years. However, when a tuberculosis... Yeah, I know, right? Like... I mean, this family was literally shattered, absolutely shattered. And right, but I, I, ha- I know where I have information on every place they lived in Boston. Oh wow, very cool. Do you want to talk about it now or later? I, I will. I'll get into it more of it later. But they did not stay at the house that was bought for them. Really, they ended up moving several times. Interesting. Okay, I can't wait to hear about that. And the, and and I'll get more into it. But they moved them into an all-white neighborhood. Oh no. Oh, well, that would explain. At least as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. All their immediate neighbors were white. Wow. Wow. Well, tragedy continued to strike this family because there was a tuberculosis epidemic that plagued the African-American population in Boston. And her youngest child, who had survived the massacre, died in 1908 of tuberculosis. And then by 1923, more would die. Then in 1942, the last surviving child, Cora, died from a heart attack. With all of her children gone, Lavinia returned to Florence County, South Carolina, and lived the remainder of her life in Cartersville, where she died in 1947. Now, in early 2019, the Lake City Post Office was renamed to honor Fraser Baker, thanks to congressional legislation first put forward by U.S. Representative James Clyburn. At the time of the announcement, the Charleston Post and Courier reported remarks by Fraser's great niece, Dr. Fastonia Baker. We would be remiss if we didn't recognize that we are coming close to 121 years since the painful event against Fraser and other members of our family. We as a family are glad that the recognition of this painful event finally happened. It's long overdue. As an additional factoid, an estimated 185 African Americans were lynched in South Carolina between 1877 and 1950, according to a 2017 report from the Equal Justice Initiative. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the lynching of Frazier and Julia Baker. So, Denise, what what about the family? What can you tell us? You did such an amazing job on that. I feel like I can't follow it, but I will. (laughs) I will Um, take compliments wherever I can get them. As you can imagine, there sadly wasn't much for me to find. Not only was this a black family, but one in the South. Although records in South Carolina are better than Mississippi, but there was more to it than just that. So this week, I'm going to change things up a bit because of that. You see, once I realized how limited I was with information on the Baker family tree, I decided to look at a few more people, probably because I'm a masochist. Let's just add to my work. <laughs> um, so not only did I look at the family of Frazier, but I also looked into the family trees of Ida B. Wells, Lillian Clayton Jewett, and all of those accused of Frazier's murder that went on trial. I wanted a little background on these men 
and whether or not anything of interest happened next in their lives. So I plan to divide this into three parts. The Baker family, the villains, and the heroes. Okay. So we'll start discussing what happened to his family after the lynching. You went into it a little bit, but here are a few things I could document for myself. None of his children ever married, and there would never be any grandchildren. That's part of what limited my information. Not only was it going to be difficult to go back, but there was nothing to go down with. Not only that, but his wife, Lavinia, would outlive all their children. So that, you know, it adds to it. So I did find the family in the 1900 census living at 91 Highland Street. That was the home that was bought for them. And actually, I believe they gave them the home. So it was like a home in their name. Mm -hmm. And it was, like I said, primarily a white neighborhood. Lavinia was working as a washerwoman while her daughters, Rosa and Cora, worked as housemaids. So while they had a home, they didn't have the financials to keep up with everything. So they had to work. Then on January 1st, 1908, youngest son, William B. Baker Willie, died of tuberculosis at 15. At his death, there was an obituary that appeared in the Boston Globe on January 3rd. I'm not going to read it because it's more recounting of events in 1898. And his family moved to Boston. I will put it on the website, though, um, okay. because I think it's worth reading. I think it's notable enough that the article doesn't focus on the family and his death and how it impacted the family as much as it did the circumstances that brought the family north and who brought them there and who their saviors were, basically. Mm-hmm. Eleven months after William's death, youngest living daughter, Sarah, age 18, died. Her cause of death was listed as pulmonary and intestinal hemorrhages with a secondary cause of tuberculosis. There was no newspaper article for her death. At this point, a lot of Boston had forgotten about them. In 1910, the family no longer lived in the all-white neighborhood. They had moved to 14 Westminster in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I couldn't find them in the census at first using traditional methods. But I did find Lavinia in the city directory. And from there, I looked at the census records on that street. Eventually, I found what I believe was her and her daughter, Cora. But in the 1910 census, they were listed as Virginia Lincoln and Cora Lincoln. Hmm. So either somebody screwed up the name or they were trying to be quiet. And, and mm-hmm. In 1916, Lavinia would lose her fourth child, this time son, Lincoln Baker, age 30, who also died of tuberculosis, and he died at the state hospital in Grafton, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Unlike 1910, I was easily able to find the Baker family in the 1920 census. Lavinia and her two daughters now lived at 124 Camden Street, so they've moved again. Mm-hmm. Lavinia worked as a housekeeper at a lodging house, while daughter Rosella, or Rosa, taught music from their home. Cora didn't have a position. I suspect that's because she was ill with tuberculosis at the time. The census was taken in January. In March, Cora died. She was 35. So four children dead from tuberculosis. Only one child still lived. Rosa. Lavinia and her daughter would live together for their remaining years. 
with Rosa teaching piano lessons. They moved a couple more times after this. What I found amusing is that in the census records, they were way off on the ages most of the time, usually making one or both much younger than they really were. Mm -hmm. Then at age 62, Rosa died in March 1942. And you said the cause of death was a heart attack? I believe. That's what I'd see. Yeah. Yeah. Was that what was on her death certificate? I couldn't find her. her it didn't have um, her death certificate on there. I just had the date. Oh. Lavinia would leave Boston sometime after 1944 and return to South Carolina. And I'm basing the date on the Boston City Directory because she was in it in 1944, but not in 1945. Okay. So, on September 6, 1947, after enduring more loss than a person would have, a person should have to face Lavinia died in Lamar, South Carolina of heart failure at the age of 86. There were no news reports of her death. Wow. It's the bakers had been forgotten. Wow. Yeah. Now I struggled to find any information on the parents of Fraser B. Baker. I will say though, I found Lavinia's parents and I found Lavinia's family. She was the daughter of Isaiah Russell who was born into slavery in 1828, and his wife, Sarah Ham. And she was the oldest of eight children. Oh, my goodness. So when she returned to South Carolina, she was probably returning to her siblings that were still living. And she had many, many nieces and nephews. Back to Fraser, I'm still uncertain who his parents were. It's a mystery. I was unable to find him in the 1870 census and with no death record, I have very little information. Okay. None as to who his parents were. The only death records that were, um, that I was able to find online in South Carolina in 1898 were Charleston records, but he wasn't in Charleston. So there were zero records for that County white or black. So I scoured the newspaper articles about his death and it was there that I found a clue in a couple of articles right after the lynching there was a brief mention of a brother that the brother had come to tell him to leave that these people were going to come and lynch him now of course the newspapers didn't bother to mention the brother's name which is probably good for him Um, but with that information I knew he had a brother eventually I found a name that would help a little and you mentioned her a little bit ago, Dr. Faustinia Baker. She appeared in a 2017 short documentary about lynching in the American South called An Outrage, produced and directed by Hannah Ayers and Lance Warren. The documentary takes the perspective of the victims and their descendants with at least six different specific stories. And I officially have that now on my watch list. And I'll have a link to the website. So you can get it accessed through your library for free or you can pay a small amount to watch it and one of these days when I have a moment I'm going to watch it <laughs> um, anyhow Dr. Baker said that she was the great niece of Fraser Baker like you mentioned with that information I built her tree back to find where she connected with Fraser and to be honest I, I was hoping that would lead me to his father but it did not but I believe I know the name of his brother at least good So there are people on Ancestry who have created trees and claim to know the name of his brother's parents. I I don't believe those trees (laughs) Mm because they don't make any sense. I mean, it's possible, 
but I, I don't see evidence. And of course, these are like people copying other trees and they're not saying mm-hmm. what their documentation is. So I'm not right. even going to mention the theories they have because that's how, um, how, how little I trust it. But I, I did reach out to Dr. Baker's daughter and I spoke with her briefly on the phone. She said that she had a copy of the family tree and would get back to me. However, we've missed each other a couple times trying to get okay. information. If I do hear from her in the future, I'll, I'll let everybody know what she has to say if it reveals any more information. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's talk about Dr. Faustinia Willoughby Baker, who was an impressive woman in her own right. So before 1970, she had earned a bachelor's degree in education from South Carolina State University. In the 1970s, she taught health in New York City public schools before returning to South Carolina for a short time, where she became a professor of health education and the women's basketball coach at Voorhees College, a small private school. Then she had a research fellowship at the University of South Carolina for two years, starting in 1978. And that says a lot, given that the University of South Carolina didn't start admitting black students until 1963. Oh, wow. Probably about the same time that Dr. Baker entered school in, at South Carolina State. And they were forced to admit those three students, their first three black students. Yeah, I have no doubt. So back to Dr. Baker, though. She continued teaching in South Carolina for a few more years before leaving for good by 1984. And she settled in Washington, D.C. and earned her master's in education from Howard University, where she would become an assistant professor in 1985. In 1993, Dr. Baker earned her doctorate in education from George Washington University. I mean, very impressive. In 1994, a book she wrote was published, Women's Health, What Do You Know About It? Hmm. It was she, though, you mentioned the, the, um, you mentioned the post office gain the name it was she who led the movement to get the lake city post office renamed and that's awesome she's the one who petitioned and got you know the u.s representative james Clyborne to help get that moving and he happens to be the majority whip in in the house of representatives since 2019 oh nice yeah before her death at the age wait really quick is there someone typing on your it's the dog for those of you, just so you know, if you hear a little clicking, it's my dog deciding to walk all along the floor. Yes, I need to get him a tram. <laughs> he's just, he has to be near me. Um, and he has to walk this whole time, I guess. Yeah, she died in in 2020 at the age of 78. And at the time, she had been writing a book about her family and Fraser B. Baker titled A Black Postmaster in a White Town. It hasn't yet been published, but hopefully it will be soon. So how does she tie in with the family? How does she meet up with Frazier? And that was the end of part one covering Frazier B. Baker. And you won't want to miss next week when we cover part two. And we discuss where Dr. Baker's line meets with Frazier Baker's line, where at least where I believe it does. And the craziest thing I found in the census that shocked me, um, I've just never seen it before. And it was amazing. Then we get into who the men were who killed Fraser Baker, as well as the heroes in the story. Or were they? So part two will be up on September 15th. And we hope you come back to where murder and family meet. 
If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.